I took your advice on something this week. Really? Why? I don't know. I was in a very low moment emotionally. What did you do? I decided I was going to start watching The Dragon Prince. Oh my god! Yeah! Yeah! You started it! Yep, yep. How far are you? We are on (laughs) book two, chapter six. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) You took my advice intensely. Yeah, yeah. Well, we didn't mean to, but it's like really good. (laughs) It's really good. It's so good. Oh my goodness. It's fascinating um i love it the storytelling's amazing the characters oh, oh the characters i recognized a name on it right away um, which name giancarlo volpe mm-hmm. which uh funny enough i believe he's the director of this episode is he really i think so directed by giancarlo volpe wow uh didn't break work on the show as well I'm not sure about that, but I know Giancarlo Volpe does. I know uh, Aaron Ahaz did. Okay. And Jack DeSena. Yes. Yes. All right. That was honestly what sold me. Honestly, your yeah. comment your comment last episode about Jack DeSena on it sold me. I'm curious to see there's... So I've seen... I've been able to kind of see the crossover between the people who worked on Atla and the people who worked on Dragon Prince in the mm-hmm. style and the talking and stuff. But um, I'm also seeing a crossover between Ruby. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I haven't watched Ruby. Okay. There's a character, like one of the queens from one of the other nations is exactly another character. Like, the red hair, the gold crown, like, the outfit is Pyrrha. Uh, the the young queen? No, not the young queen. Not the young queen. I'll send you a picture and you'll... Because when I know in Dragon Prince, when we meet the young queen, I, I forget her name, but all I could think was uh, Liana Mormont <laughs> from Game of Thrones. I mean, incredible, yes. Um, but this character... Uh, I just want a full-length picture so I can... But not a fan art picture. I don't want that. I want regular Pira. It's fine. I'll take it. So how long did it take you in watching Dragon Prince before you stopped hearing Sokka? Oh, right away, actually. It's it's not it's not Sokka to me. It it is this new character, but I love what he brings to it. Um so like I love him. And so it just was like kind of natural in a way. I think I genuinely and I don't know if, you know, it's it's not a commentary on, on the voice acting because it's a fantastic, you know, Jack does a fantastic job. But just my own brain, it took me, I think, like three episodes to stop hearing <laughs> Sokka. I just sent you a picture of what Pyrrha looks like. And you'll see it and you'll be like, yeah. I see it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> one of the queens. <laughs> so I don't, I, I need to look into it because I've just, I just got to that episode, really. Um, but I need to see. I need to know because I love Pira. So, so who's your favorite character? Who's my favorite character? Why cut me with a knife? Why don't you? Um, favorite character. Wait, easy, easy. Actually, my favorite hmm. character is the sea captain with two eye patches. <laughs> that is my favorite character. I'm not surprised. Absolutely my favorite character. Also, my favorite character, competence. That's not a person's name. Just the fact that there is competence. Yeah. And just brilliant that the bad guy just keeps running into competence. And that is what's stopping his plans. I just, it's so refreshing. Let me just say, just competence. But uh, I am really enjoying it. We have to be careful to not start it too late because we know we're going to watch a bunch of episodes. Yeah, that was when I watched it. That was my like morning coffee show. Ooh, okay. The problem was I would have to stop watching to go work. Yeah. And be in Zoom meetings. And you don't want to stop watching that show to go into a Zoom meeting. That's... I couldn't That's do it. That's 60 to zero. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And only bad shows during the work times. <laughs> yeah, I was I was not very productive for the time that I was watching that show. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is our dinner time uh, and after dinner show. So I actually did get in two episodes tonight. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago. 
the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello and welcome to The Pie Show with your hosts. I'm Colton. And I'm Kelly. And this week we are talking about book two, chapter four, The Swamp. Swamp time. Swamp time. In this episode... When the kids end up in a mysterious and strange swamp, their fears are exposed. Ooh. That is a way to describe this episode. We haven't done an ooh in a while after We haven't the, done an ooh. But this one deserves an ooh. A, a swamp ooh? I think it deserves an ooh. What? I don't know. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's a swamp ooh. All right. Okay. I mean, anything we do this week is a swamp thing swamp something yeah Yeah. it's a a swamp thing it's a swamp thing it's just a swamp thing just swamp things continuing that weird energy from last week (laughs) takes a couple episodes to get out (laughs) whoops (laughs) i think my mic is being weird again so yeah it's gonna be fun yeah so our recap this week it's uh depressing yeah, yeah, pretty depressing. Let's you know, it just is like, hey, remember Yue? She died. I feel like it went through every character's personal trauma and loss. Yeah, yeah, it was like this is about grief. Just just right up front, this is about grief. Yeah, yeah. I think what's what also really kind of hit and uh about the grief is that when they get to the opening like picture of saying you know this is chapter four the music underneath that there it's kind of empty there's like a lack of music it's it's not quite silent but it's really it doesn't it's not a presence yeah it's just sort of what's lingering from before Mm -hmm. it's an echo of what was there Ooh, yeah like a hole in all of our characters hearts yeah And especially I've been tracking, you know, well, not tracking necessarily, but I've been paying attention to Sokka's grief and how he's processing it. And so I'm like, oh, like the little radar went off and the recap was like, here's Sokka. Here's Sokka's grief. Let's go. Let's get into it. Well, well, before we get into it, I think we should talk about uh, Zuko and Iroh kind of because they're in this episode, sort of. Yeah. Like a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end. They're more bookends, and I find that really interesting. We're really departing from having them as the, like, B-plot in a way. Like, we're not balancing between Aang and Zuko as we have them before. Uh, This is really, you get a glimpse of him at the beginning, you get a glimpse of him at the end. Yeah, it feels more like they're setting the stage for, you know, getting Zuko and Iroh where they need to be for future episodes, rather than having them necessarily directly juxtapose Aang. It's a really important step for them to get out this experience of begging on the streets and really important for Zuko's character to see kind of what he considers a low point for himself. Uh, But it's not... It's not big enough that I would have liked a whole episode bouncing back between the swamp and seeing this. It's it's not as important. I think we get what we need from seeing Zuko and Iroh experience this experience being on the street. And we're not missing anything by the time we get to the end and see the like the resurrection of the blue spirit. Yeah, it's really efficient storytelling. Yes, yes. There's nothing put in there just just because, oh, yeah, Zuko's a main character. Maybe we should see him more. No, they gave you just what you needed. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Blue Spirit, there's a cart in the first shot, in the first scene, (laughs) that goes right in front of the whole screen. Yeah. And our our view and vision of Zuko and Iroh is blocked by this cart that looks like a traveling mask salesman's cart. Yep. I did not pause it. But I wanted to because surely the blue spirit mask must be on that cart. It's on there. Oh, you paused it? 
I, I know it's on there. Oh, okay. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's on there. Yeah. I, um, so like I said in the past, I fell asleep watching this episode the first time, <laughs> which is a thing that we're going to talk about a fair bit this week, I think. Um, so I did not remember that the blue spirit showed up. So I kind of got, you know, in a way I got to watch this episode for the first time this week. And the second that cart with all those masks shows up, I was like, oh, that is a Chekhov's blue spirit mask. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you put a blue spirit mask on a cart in the first act if you don't have the blue spirit in the third act? <laughs> I like that you call it the Chekhov blue spirit mask. That's what it is, is it not? <laughs> I mean, that's, that is what it is. I agree with you there. We also have Chekhov's broadswords. Um, there's also, apparently, when the mask is seen, you can hear a little bit of the Blue Spirit music. I'd have to go back and listen and watch and listen to that again. I did not catch that, but I believe it. I mean, there was Sungi horn at, at the, the end. At the end, there is. Yeah. yeah. At the end, I hear the Sungi horns. But uh, yeah, he did. And the broadswords. It's like all the all the elements of the blue spirit were there and ripe for the taking for Zuko when he needed it most. It's like the blue spirit reached out to save him so that he could take up the mantle again to exact vengeance on people that are wronging the village who the blue spirit called to him, but I think he doesn't know. I think he has to find what that call is because I think he's not at the point where he's going to necessarily extract revenge on people wronging other people, but definitely at the point where he would extract revenge on people who have wronged him or Iroh. He's not at the point where he would do for others. I I was thinking about our last episode in a way he kind of has that law similar to Boomy of being unable to see outside of himself just yet. He does not have that perspective. And so it'll be interesting to to see where he learns that perspective. I mean, I think of I think that's Iroh personally, but to see when he learns that perspective. Yeah, I do think it's it's interesting um, to see him take up the mantle of the Blue Spirit again at this point in his journey. Because, you know, we know that Zuko and Iroh are on the run from the Fire Nation. Um, but so far, Iroh's sort of been the one directing that flight and, and taking the lead on that. And Zuko has been going with him because he has to. But we're, I don't know about you, but I'm left with the impression so far in season two that Zuko is still looking for a way back in to the Fire mm. Nation. Yeah, especially seeing as he was so quick to jump on the boat with Azula when she said... Dad wants you back. Exactly. Come on home. And I mean, we've only seen the blue spirit a little bit so far, but every time we've seen the blue spirit, it has been a a persona, a character in opposition to the Fire Nation at large. And I think, you know, him taking up the mantle of the blue spirit once again is a communication to the audience that, you know, he is taking a step away from the Fire Nation of his own volition. I think I said this before, but I don't think he personally can defy the Fire Nation yet. It's not in his moral code. And so he has to take on this persona to explain to himself why he is making the decisions he is uh, and to justify it to himself. And oh, so course. he takes those he takes that on in those kind of moments of uh where he doesn't feel there's much hope. And this is this is kind of his Hail Mary, uh, like he did when the Avatar was captured. He's like, all right, I got one shot at this, and I can't do it as me. And I think being in the position that he is on the street and with Iroh, he's there back to the corner again saying, I've got one shot at getting us out of this, and I can't do it as me. Not sad, but exciting to see where that can kind of grow and how those two personas can kind of merge over time. Where's the line for Zuko? When does he put on the mask and when does he take it off? Colton, so this episode, I had to look up when it aired because this episode felt like the first real 
horror themed episode that we get first like i remember watching this and the first time and being scared it's really scary like it it has it has the angles of it and i will say i i was like maybe it aired in october like that and that's what it is it aired in april original air date i did not expect that is april the opposite end of the calendar from october are you gonna make me think of calendars <laughs> In 2021? But yeah, it does, do, it does do a lot of horror elements. Like, you know, they land in the swamp and we get that one shot of like, you know, just the tree line and it does the yes. whole Dutch tilt thing. Like they animated the Dutch tilt. They didn't have to do that. <laughs> but they wanted to say, no, this is horror. Yeah. We're literally going to turn the world on its end. And uh, the making you feel as if they're being watched as well is uh, it's it's crazy how you can do that in an animated still shot to make you feel like there's something moving even though there's nothing moving well you know they learned from snow white <laughs> yeah it is very snow White. they got the creepy eyes in the background of the forest it's snow white <laughs> so i actually took a note because i don't know about you but i noticed a lot of like other references in the visual representation of the swamp okay so like Sokka's hacking away at the trees like the orcs do in fangorn forest right before the forest mm -hmm. eats them all in lord of the rings okay um, the general aesthetic of the swamp and the whole like creepy pseudo evil visions thing like that's just straight dagobah from empire strikes back Okay. The gas bubbles shooting out of the ground. Uh, that's the the fire shooting out of the ground in from the fire Princess swamp Bride. in Princess Bride. Like <laughs> the creepy eyes from Snow White. This so many references and tropes, and just all combined into one massive swamp. Every evil swamp you've ever seen, we're just throwing it all in there, all at once. And it's really interesting because I think it's really interesting to characterize the swamp because that's what I'm going to say. The swamp is its character is a character that we are introducing in this episode. This is our big new character for the week. Yeah, but to characterize the swamp as evil is a very interesting, very interesting perspective that the viewer and the viewer and the gang have to kind of sort through is the swamp evil do you think the swamp is evil i don't think it is i think it's like chaotic neutral at best <laughs> <laughs> you um, nerd <laughs> i am a nerd <laughs> proud of it but i don't think it's necessarily evil but i could see how its visions and what it shows people can be seen as evil. And it's interesting that this this character of the swamp can strike fear in some people, but in people like the Swamp Enders and Hugh, it can enlighten them. It's home and it's a sense of enlightenment in what the shop in what the swamp can show them. I like that. Do you want to talk about what the swamp shows us in this episode? Yeah, so Katara gets uh, a vision of her mom and she like I think this is also all the main characters are pulled away from each other. Well, except Momo and Appa. Those those two get to stay together this episode, thank God. But um have we seen the three of them kind of pulled apart before? I know we've seen Sokka pulled apart from Katara and Aang. I think we've seen every permutation of a member pulled away but i don't think we've seen everyone doing their own thing this is yeah this is everyone i mean because even in in jet katara and ang are still in the same place sock is the one who walks away um in the where they have the fortune teller there is Sokka and ang together and katara's on her own so we've had at least two together each time, but this, it separates all three of them from each other. Yeah, in, in and they some need to of face our time, themselves. in some of our time in the Northern Water Tribe, you know, there are moments where everyone's doing their own thing, but I wouldn't say that's them pulled apart. Yeah, because I would assume, you know, like, so Katara went to her waterbending school, Aang went to his waterbending school, but then they... They were like, let's fill each other in on exactly everything that we did. Yeah, like, it wasn't yeah. really a part apart. Yeah. And, but you know, they is... elected to, to split up as opposed to. Yes. And we didn't really the... see a lot of them. Like, we didn't get a lot of time with everyone on their own mm -hmm. doing their own thing in the way that we do here. 
This is the three of them being dragged away from each other. Yeah. This is this is forced. And they're forced to face fears or visions or a combination of the two. And Katara is faced with her mother and trying to she believes she sees her mother and goes to reach for her and she's not there. And doesn't matter how much she fights the swamp with her water bending, she can't be with her mother. Um, Yue shows herself to Sokka. Uh, That's interesting. <laughs> okay, okay. I want to back up a second. Okay. Because you said that the swamp shows Katara a vision of her mother. Mm-hmm. And then she you doesn't t- actually see her face. And then you turned around and you said Yue shows herself to Sokka. I did. I did say it that way. Do you think that Yue is showing herself to Sokka, or do you think that the swamp is showing Sokka a vision of Yue? The swamp is definitely showing Sokka his vision of Yue is what I feel. Okay. I agree with you. I just wanted to make sure. Thank you for calling me on that. I thought we were about to have a fight. (laughs) No. Thank you for calling me on that. Uh, Sokka sees Yue, and I see, like... I don't know. I saw it on on him at first. He is happy to see her because, I mean, he has seen her in spirit form before. And spirits do appear. He's seen the spirits with the avatar. So there's like this glimmer of hope on his face for a second of like, I may actually get to see UA. But he knows he knows in his heart it's not her. Uh, I I feel I think he knows. I mean, he doesn't. He's not one for the mystical. So when she says that it's his fault that she's now gone, uh, I'm really happy that he doesn't, he says he doesn't believe it. And sometimes I think that makes all the difference when you have those insecurities and when you have, and when you have that, it's just saying it out loud that no, no. I think saying it out loud and denying it out loud is very important Mm -hmm. to coming to terms with the lie. Yeah. As such. But I think in this moment, the vis- Sokka has the vision he does mm-hmm. because he feels that guilt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he, he points does out think to it's his fault. He points out to the gang. He goes that he thinks about her all the time. That she's always with him and on his mind. And I think I've mentioned that you know I see that in how fiercely protective he is of Katara and Aang because I mean he was protected before, but now he's truly lost someone he loves again. And it was like kind of in his he believes it was in his grasp to be able to do something before he was a child. He still has some of those kind of mental excuses in a way, which are valid. You were a child; you couldn't do anything. Um, but this one, he's like, I've been able to save everybody else this journey. I couldn't save her. It's brutal. And Ang gets the weirdest vision of all, which is a creepy little girl giggling. <laughs> And a flying boar. So I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this episode, I thought the creepy little girl giggling was Meng. Ah. But I, mean, I don't think I understand, that anymore. I understand your confusion because it is the same voice actress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like a similar energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similar chaotic energy. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the giggling. Yeah. Especially because when we meet the character eventually, she's not a huge giggler. At all. <laughs> At all. Like, she'll laugh, but it's more of, like, a cackle. Yeah. Than, <laughs> than a giggle. Than a giggle. But um, she he sees someone that he's never seen before. You know, honestly, I, I think out of all three visions, Aang's is my least favorite. Ooh, okay. Tell me why. Well, I don't know. I just, I think maybe because, you know, in the in this very episode while we're supposedly confused about the nature of Aang's vision, like the show just flat out comes and tells us like, oh, yeah, this vision, by the way, that you're confused about, of course you're confused about it because, like, the timeline is meaningless it's here. It's something yet to and, come, yeah. Like, yeah, you just don't, you just plain don't have yeah. the information. Like, there's nothing there for you yet. Yeah, it's there a Jeremy Fermi, baby. <laughs> yeah, but this is, it's it's a premonition. It's not It's not a reflection. And I think that there's just, because of the nature of human perception, there's more to Sokka and Katara's visions. Do you, two questions. Do you wish there was more to Aang, Aang's vision? And if so, what more would you have wanted? I don't know. Um, that's an interesting question because I kind of, on the one hand, I feel like you know, we already had this mysterious forward-looking mentality around Aang from from Boomy's whole, you know, 
I'm not your master, but the person who, like, you need to look out for the person who will be, and you'll know it when you see it, and here's how. Like, we already had this mystery in our heads. And on the one hand, this premonition feels like, okay, you're just giving us the same mystery you've already given us. But on the other hand, it's growing into this this minor theme for early season two of, you know, everything that Aang does is looking forward to finding out who his earthbending master is going to be. Yeah. And it adds, I think for me, it adds a mystical element to when we find out who his earthbending master is, um, because this was destined. So the Banyan Grove tree, we learned that the swamp is actually all connected. It is one tree and many roots coming up. And it is the Banyan Grove tree, also known as the heart of the swamp. And it is a very mystical spot of enlightenment uh, for some. And again, has shown many uh, things about themselves, things about the future, things about the past. So my question to you, Colton, is was there something magical? Was there something mystical going on here? Or was this just swamp gas? Your thoughts and feelings? I think there was something mystical going on here. I am pleasantly surprised by this. (laughs) What do you mean you're surprised by this? I don't know. I just kept watching this watching this episode and every time Sokka was just like, it's just swamp gas. Oh, this swamp. Like it's not real. It's not real. I kept seeing Colton. I think if you f- were thinking it- <laughs> that while watching this episode that I have misrepresented my views. Okay. Um and I would like to use this opportunity to correct that. Okay. So I don't think that this universe is devoid of mysticism. I just don't think that I, th- I think that mysticism and predestiny are two distinct things. And what I think is you can predestiny. Like the 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 idea that like Aang is on this predetermined destined path that he must walk. Like I think that is separate from the mysticism of the universe. And I think you can have mystical elements of the universe without necessarily having destiny. Whereas I see them a bit more overlapping right. in my viewing. Okay. Yeah. Um, but like there's definitely like this is an area of deep mysticism, concentrated spirituality. I mean, the it's the entire swamp is, you know, you're existing inside of a single mega living organism, which, by the yes. way, I don't know if you're aware, actually has a basis in our reality. There is a forest. I forget which forest here. Let me let me look it up real quick. There is a forest, the largest living organism in the earth. It's like the whole forest is one tree. Yes, yes. This is this I I've read about that before. Yeah. Uh that's like an actual thing that exists in the world. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful inspiration for this show though, and to find that balance between nature and mystic and logic and uh you know timey-wimey stuff (laughs) to have it all balanced in this tree and i mean how many times do we see a tree of life type thing uh in in media but to have it connected and have its own spirit i mean how ang is able to find appa and momo uh and track people down by connecting by touching the vines and connecting and find and searching for them the swamp leads them there rather like that other intellectual property that's known as avatar the blue people movie i don't talk they do that in the blue people movie I don't talk about that. That it doesn't not for me. Not for me. My awa, Kelly. My awa. Okay. Okay. Um, but this is something that it, it, it continues into Cora as well and being able to find um to find people and it becomes a the swamp becomes a huge character in Cora as well. I know I, I talked earlier about the, the comparisons to Fangorn Forest and, and Dagobah from Star Wars, but you know, in addition to the quick visual shorthand of this is how we represent dark, scary forest place, those are in their respective universes deeply spiritual locations. Mm. I mean, yeah. the Lord of the Rings presents nature as the like core aspect of that universe's spirituality and goodness itself against the cold-hearted industrialism of evil, and in Star Wars. 
spirituality is so linked to life force that they're one and the same. Life creates the spirituality in that universe. And I think that, you know, those comparisons are like so visually there in this episode because we're also supposed to make the connections to the metatextual aspects of those universes. I think it also, the swamp itself makes you think outside, not just outside of the media and into, you know, other, other areas, uh, like you stated, but it makes me think of what Hebei's forest must have looked like mm, yeah. prior to it being devastated. And would it have given off the same vibe? And this is just the start of the swamp. I really love that this is like the intro, like it's its own character introduction. But I think it also takes on its own elements in a way. It has its own agency. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say the swamp has its own agency because we get the twister that brings Aang to the swamp. And when Sokka and Katara meet up with swamp vendors that they meet later, they're like, oh, that's really crazy. How were you able to do that? And they're like, we didn't. Like, we don't do that. And so to have the swamp not just have its own um, its own vibe, its own aesthetic, but to have its own agency and kind of choosing what happens. I mean, we see the vines move on their own, not just through swamp vendors. Uh, and it is it is alive and it is it has it has a story to tell. So you said we see the vines move on their own, not just through swamp vendors. Yes. Do you think when we see the vines move in the nighttime scene when our to pull, them, to pull are, them away from each other? Yeah, basically abducted by the swamp. You think that's the swamp acting on its own, not the swamp vendors? I do believe that. I think I agree with you. Because Hugh really, he doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge them until they're at the heart of the swamp, because that is his main home is the heart of the swamp. And they're all taken on their own journey to the heart of the swamp. They don't land there. And they're all take all three are taken in different directions. The swamp pulls them to Hugh. Yes, yes. And pulls them to the heart so that they can get to because there is that when they meet Hugh. They're at an elevated point that they can actually see that everything is interconnected. And it's a beautiful representation of the balance that the avatar is supposed to bring to the world and that everything can be interconnected. As far away as you think the Southern Water Tribe is from the Northern Water Tribe or from the Fire Nation, one action can cause a ripple effect and it affects everyone. Everyone is interconnected to each other. Cute animal alert! All right, we have a lot of animals this episode. (laughs) I don't think we've had this many animals this season. (laughs) I felt myself just stopping constantly and like all right there's another animal all right i thought that was it nope there is another animal i'm so glad that you're the one this week that like had to catalog the animal that (laughs) actually you catalog the animals every week but i was glad this week that you're the one that catalogs (laughs) the animals because yeah i i wanted to do this segment really bad so it's it's on me (laughs) yeah this your segment your catalog we open with the ostrich horse that zuko stole before uh, I like that continuity. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. It's Zuko's still there, like napping on it. Yeah. Uh, then we get, uh, and that ostrich horse sticks with us for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we get Appa and Momo who have their own adventure this week. They go on a little adventure and they have fun together. Do they have fun? They're Momo on the run. Fun. They are being chased. I think Momo has fun. Appa does not have fun. I love that Momo finds the bison whistle and is like, this is how we found each other before. If I just blow on this, my human will find me. And Appa is just like, that's not how that works. Like, that's just, no, it finds me. I'm right here. (laughs) Especially because Momo's blowing on it backwards. And like, you can tell by the way they animate it. No one's happy with the sound. (laughs) No one's happy with the sound. I mean, Appa is very sensitive to sound, like trying to sleep and just all the sounds of the swamp. And then just is just like, shut up. Mm-hmm. I did like at one point, uh, Momo is sitting on Appa, like in the spot where Aang normally sits, like on his head. Like, oh, I'm the driver now. Someone has to drive the boat. <laughs> well, did you notice that? Well, the swamp vendors actually call that out and say, is that Lemu driving that bison? <laughs> yep. 
very much Momo being like, I've seen the humans do these things. I've seen my pets. Like, I think Momo thinks of Aang and the gang as his pets and not <laughs> because he kind of found them and gave them food to start with. Mm-hmm. He's like, I've lost my pets. I need to find them. And uh, my good friend here is going to help me out. And Appa's just like, oh, dear God, not this one. <laughs> It's funny. Earlier this week, I was um, reading through my copy of the the art of Avatar: The Last Airbender, and there's a whole like you know double page feature on Momo, and in there's a, there's tons of like you know early uh, character study on him, and in the notes like that they sent over to the studio that did the animation on every piece of character study art for Momo are arrows and pointers and descriptions about how. Do not animate him like a human. He's not a human. He's like this cat lemur bat thing. He does not move like a human. He doesn't sit like a human. He doesn't stand like a human. Nothing he does ever should be like a human. But I think he thinks of himself as a human. Yes. (laughs) He looks around at the rest of the group and goes, I am the one brain cell here. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he hangs out with Sokka, so... (laughs) Hey, you're the one that's Team Sokka's the smartest. <laughs> no, well, you're the no, captain I, of I, that team. I'm I'm the captain of Sokka. Also believes he's the one brain cell. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> so between them, they're the two brain cells. Yes, that rub together really hard <laughs> and try and figure things out. <laughs> if Momo could talk, it would end everything for everyone. If Momo and Sokka could communicate. I'm sorry, the Fire Lord doesn't stand a chance. Okay, but Momo does talk in that one episode when we see Momo in the spirit world. To Sokka? No, to Aang. No, you have that theory (laughs) that Momo... Okay, okay. No, we're not opening up. We we have more animals to talk about. No, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The monkey in the spirit world from the end of season one, this Momo. No, there is a Momo that talks to Aang in the future. Yeah, it's the same Momo. Come on, we have more animals. (laughs) No, no, no. I need to make this very clear. That is a very different character. That that is a very different character. Because Momo does have a voice later in the show. Besides, like, Momo does speak. Kelly, we can't have this fight now. We'll have it in the future. We have more animals to get through. (laughs) Why do you do this to me? Because you do it to me. This is payback. Why, Colton? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm okay. leaving this Fine. all in. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Let's move on to some new animals, okay? I'm going to go in order of appearance. So, so we have... Uh, before we get into that... <laughs> Jesus. Yes. Yes, Can we Colton? just take a second to acknowledge the animal that exists in this universe that we don't see that they mentioned, the lemu? Oh, well, no, no, no. They they fumble over what it's called. They do. They are aware of them. Okay, but we don't see lemurs. No, I, I, I don't think. I think they haven't seen a lemur in a really long time. I, it's kind I of a legendary. I am willing to take the swamp benders at their word that a lemu is an animal that exists. Do you want me to look it up? No, I don't. Do you want me to look I it up? I don't want you to look it up. I just is want you to I accept my headcanon. look in my eye? I just want you to accept my crazy headcanon. I will not. <laughs> I will not. I have accepted headcanons before. I will not on this one. Fortunately, the wonderful thing about headcanons is they don't require your acceptance. <laughs> That's fine. You can have that. I will not accept it myself. It's fine. Talk you to me about wrong. elbow leeches. <laughs> okay, yes. I want to get into the new animals. <sighs> this is the struggle of me fighting for this segment <laughs> every time. So I want to go in order of appearance. And first we have the elbow leech. Not cute. Not cute. Decidedly not cute. Um, the elbow leech, uh, it is called an elbow leech. Uh, you would think like, oh, it's just a leech attached to the elbow. No, it's a leech that likes to attach itself specifically to elbows. Leeches can as have someone, taste. As someone with a history of a bad elbow, I really, really dislike the elbow leech. <laughs> <laughs> I really dislike it. <laughs> My my own personal history with elbows is bad, so I hate the elbow leech. Um, we then have the screeching bird. Pretty cute. Yes, that is what it's called. It is kind of cute, but that scream on it. Oh, my God. Pretty terrifying. That is, yeah. 
Uh, it says the screeching birds' distinct vocalizations resemble the screeches made by common barn owls. Do you have barn owls in your area of the Not world? Not my specific area, but we I have barn so, owls yeah. in my area of the world. I hear yeah. them every now and then. Yeah, I mean, uh, my my parents' house has like the has a reservation behind it, like a um, conservation land. So yeah, I've heard them, uh, and they are alternatively known as screech owls due to their distinctive screams. Which is funny because so. screech owls are like an actual animal. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But uh, yeah, I like how wide the bird's mouth can open to emit that noise. Its head gets like twice as big. <laughs> it just like ah, it looks like it looks like a demogorgon from Stranger yes. Things. <laughs> and I think honestly, like the sound spooked me the first time, but also the image of the beak just like unhinging, terrifying. I don't care if it's like the size of my fist, terrifying. We then see a cat gator. Not cute. I actually think it's really cute. <laughs> I think the cat gator's adorable. And it's 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 almost a, a pet. Well, blah, blah, blah. Cat gators are actually can be domesticated and have been domesticated by members of. I didn't mention this, uh, but these it's called the Foggy Swamp Tribe. That's the group that lives in the swamp, the Foggy Swamp Tribe. But uh, cat gators are large, dark green reptiles, about seven or eight feet long, snout to tail. Uh, it is a combination of a catfish and an alligator. Exhibits characteristics of both. It's a grumpy danger log is what it is. I think it's adorable. And one of the cat gators is named Slim. And it's named after one of the anim- animator's dogs. <laughs> Which I think is adorable. I like that. Named after actually one of the writer's dogs. Named Slim. But I think the cat gators are cute. Um, we see cat gators uh, going into like after the Hundred Year War um, in, in Korra a lot more. And they're referenced a lot more in Korra. But I think they're cute. I'd have a cat gator. I'm glad you feel that way. I do not share that sentiment. All right, and then the last thing that's introduced to us is a possum chicken. I hear they taste like Arctic hen. Mm, very similar. Very similar. Then again, you know, the person I heard it from thinks most things taste like possum chicken. <laughs> so, all right, do you have a winner this week then? I think it's the you, screeching you bird. I'm pretty bird. set on the screeching bird. That face won me over. Okay, a face only Colton could love. In addition to the swamp as a character itself, which I'm loving, by the way. Thank you for, like, putting that thought into my head. Um, I know that's that cliche of, like, New York City is the, is, 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 there's Miranda, Carrie, and the New York City is also a character. Okay, no, but the swamp is definitely a character. The swamp is definitely a character. It has its own agency, okay? The, the swamp is a character, like, the camera on the office is a character. Yes, agreed. We do have, like human characters this week we do have <laughs> i was gonna say i was gonna say week. physical characters but the swamp is, no. a, is physical so we have you know. human characters this we week. have human we characters the swamp benders i i think i've said this before of how much i love the idea of regional aspects of bending i think i've mentioned this i think yeah you have just that you know where you grow up can dictate kind of how your philosophy, how that bending is passed down as a history, and that the swamp benders have no idea that there are other water benders out there. They none don't know at all. None at all. They're like, you got, you guys got water benders out there. <laughs> you can. Cool. Wait, there's more of you. And she's like, and you can see her be like, eh, not many, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one or two of us. One or two of us, yeah. There's we're popping around there, um, but it's really cool to see, and we'll see this, I think, a bit more with earth bending because there hasn't been too much of a, of a difference between the North Pole and the South Pole, besides their whole cultural aspect of like you know, girls learn to heal, boys learn to fight, like that. That's really been the difference. Otherwise, it's water, snow, that stuff, but. With earthbending, we'll see sandbenders versus, um, like the versus clay versus dirt versus rocks. There's different types to it. 
And that learning earthbending, like learning earthbending is a huge umbrella term in a way that you can bend rocks really well, but you may not be able to bend sand as well. Mm-hmm. And so Katara can bend water incredibly, but she hasn't learned how to bend plants, like the water in the plants and use those as part of her bending because that's not the terrain that she grew up in. That's not... Not a lot the, of plants in the South Pole. Not Yeah, or the North Pole. The North Pole doesn't even know this. Well, they have that one tree. But it, it didn't have greenery. It wasn't constantly yeah. like, yeah. you know... If I'd understand if maybe they did like seaweed bending type of thing, but she hasn't even seen that. So this is its its own thing. And it really starts to I feel like this is one of those moments for people who are who stumble across the show. Of like if you can bend water, then it, there's water in plants. You could probably bend plants. Yes, yes, yes. We've thought of that. Yes, there's, you know, there's earth in metal. You could probably. Yes, we'll get to that. Yes. It's it's like that scene in X-Men 2 where Magneto's in the plastic prison and the guard comes in and he's all like, oh, too much iron in your blood. I can control that. We're not talking about that yet. We're not getting to that yet. But just it, it says, yes, these elements are everywhere. And if you if you focus, if that is your focus, you can do it. You know, if that is your focus, if that is your study, it can be done. Not because maybe I'd take it and say that more than you can do it, but that it can be done. Your like focus the, determines your reality. Yes. I mean, we'll learn that there is there is some genetic aspect to it as well for stuff like earth bending. I think we talked about it with lava benders before. Um, but there is an element of just it's untapped knowledge. An element? Yes. Very nice. It's an element of untapped knowledge. And it's a really cool, like, it's a really cool expansion of the universe that, uh, and the Swamp Bender's creating this large monster out of the vines and whatever greenery was in the river. Yeah, that's really hard to defeat because it's just... It's not actually mm-hmm. a sentient animate object. It's just, you know, armor. It's just armor. And it's a very interesting form of armor. But even in, I don't know if you noticed some of the moves that Hugh was using. It seems very, it seemed very similar to Katara's like octopus arm moves mm-hmm. and how it is constantly flowing. Yeah. And uh, really interesting to see that like there are those little takes on it. And that um, sometimes it's just it's just the region that you grew up in that there are those differences, and that's really exciting. It it's almost to me kind of like the variations in the costumes and the and the colors that it's that granular difference that makes all the difference. Yeah, and there I mean there are things about the swamp benders like you know aspects of their bending that are completely different. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the Oh, I forget his name. The one that does the fan boat bending. Is it Lou? It might or- be. <laughs> they have... Uh, Lou and Dew, right? Yeah, it's um, Tho and Dew. Tho and Dew. Okay, I think it's Tho. Tho. That okay. Tho's like the tall, skinny one? Yes. Yeah, so I believe when so. Tho does the bending to make the... It's not a fan boat, but to make the fan boat go... Mm-hmm. He's like spinning his arms like he's Wiley e. Coyote running mm-hmm. off the cliff. And that is just so not the motions that we've seen for water bending. I think the other thing is when you're in a colder climate, it's not as doable. You're bundled up. You're not able to get that as much movement on that. So it's also, you know, a matter of climate. And this is like, it's like the most Florida place. Like, I mean, I was getting, like, Bayou vibes, not exactly Florida. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I guess Everglades a bit, but... Yeah, I, I pictured Everglades for some reason. Yeah, I went I went straight to the Bayou. I think it was the uh, the music with all the Jews harp that did that for me. Mm, yeah, the Swamp Benders have their own music. It yeah. has... It's I like the Swamp Bender music. Yeah? Yeah, I like, the, I like their songs. They sing a song together. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it just felt like an episode of songs because you get Iroh's song at the beginning and then you get uh, the Swamp Enders singing a little ditty. I love Iroh's song at the beginning. I'm so sad we didn't talk about it in that segment. I just, you know, girls from Basing say, yes, it's a long, long way. <laughs> it's one of your faves. It's so funny because I always forget about that song until I'm listening to our episode for the notes and I'm like, oh, yeah, he is that here. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I never, it didn't make the impact on me that it did on you, but now it has because I listened to it so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long, long way to bossing say. <laughs> mm, yeah, and we're going to feel that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make you feel it. <laughs> it's a long, long way to bossing say, but the girls in the city, they look so pretty. So I have a question for you. At the start of Team Avatar's portion of this episode, not like the actual start of the episode of Zuko, um, mm-hmm. we, have, we have the gang flying on Appa over the swamp, and Aang is called into the swamp yes, by his own admission. Calling. He feels a calling to the swamp. I hear that, and my mind immediately goes to uh, Joseph Campbell, hero with a thousand faces, like, call to adventure kind of thinking. Um, and... The call to adventure is very often what kickstarts the hero's journey. We know this is a hero's journey story. It has touched on so many of the touchstones since, and you know, it's it's a chosen one mythology. It's we can we can look at Avatar and, and say pretty cleanly, I think, that you know, this is this is an instance of the hero's journey. My question for you um, is I have this idea that Aang is simultaneously engaging in multiple smaller versions of the hero's journey in his own story. He has a call to learn waterbending. He has a call to save the world. He has a call to be the avatar. He has a call to learn earthbending. These are all distinct, you know, micro journeys that he's going on as a part of his larger journey over the course of the show. Do you think that the swamp reaching out to him is a call to adventure? And if so, what journey do you think he's being called on? I think that had Aang, this this might, okay, I'm going to get to your answer. <laughs> Let, this is how I'm thinking through it. I'm going to take you on a, a journey. wonderful answer. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a journey with me. Okay. <laughs> through my thought process. I will answer the call. I think that had Aang not answered the swamp's call, that he would not have been able to find the path he needed to accomplish his goals of earthbend of becoming an earthbending master and finding the right people to be with him to help set balance, not only defeat the Fire Lord, but set balance to the world. I want to pause you before you continue. Go ahead. Because I'd like to provide a bit more context. Um, okay. In Campbell's theory, the rejection of the call is an important part of the journey. You need to ha- the the traditional hero normally is seeking something larger or has has you know the urge for something larger. I you know I want more than this provincial life kind of thing. Uh, and when they're initially given the call to adventure, traditionally they reject it. In Ang's case, we see this with him running away and ending up in the iceberg. Um, in I'm going to make a Star Wars comparison. Sorry. But like Obi-Wan tells Luke, you must come with me to Alderaan. And Luke says, no, I can't go with you. I have to stay here. I have to be a farmer. And a part of the hero's journey is after they reject the call, the universe pushes them in to answering finds them anyways. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Luke goes home to the farm and his aunt and uncle are burned. Aang says no to going to the swamp and a tornado pulls him into the swamp anyway. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So are you seeing the tornado as the thing pulling him in? I'm seeing the swamp calling him as the call to adventure. And, you know, as expected, he rejects it. And the swamp says, no, you don't, buddy. I think... So I want to I want to give my importance to the swamp because I think I think you pose a really good theory and I I see your side. So I want to give you my perspective from that because... I think I think you have a question, but I think it's very in in your frame right now. Yeah. And I want to I I want to I want to give you a little bit of my perspective on this. Um without going to the swamp. Uh I don't see the swamp as a new adventure in a way. 
um, the swamp was always part of the adventure. Um, and maybe that's part of what you're saying, uh, in that, you know, that rejection of like, eh, no, we're not going to go in there type of thing. And then it pulls them in any- anyways, that, that that that's kind of what you're talking about. But without them, without Aang hearing the call at all, I don't think he finds Toph. I don't think when she is presented to him, he knows that that's his teacher. I think he gives up a lot easier when she originally says no. And she is incredibly instrumental in his forming himself as an earthbender and as a person. So uh, I don't know how much that answers your question. It might align with your theory, but it might not. I don't, I, for me, I don't see it as a new journey. I see it as, I see it as the universe, like maybe me. And again, maybe we're saying the same thing, but I see it as the universe course correcting Aang of like, no, this is the way you're supposed to go. I mean, similar to the way they were going to go around the, go around the caves of the two lovers. They weren't going to take the cave system. And then the Fire Nation was there throwing fireballs at them. Yeah. And then they get, they're like, all right, I guess we'll go through the caves or we'll hide in the caves and then we'll come back out. And they blow up the caves and they say, nope, this is your only way. This is, there is, this is where I fall on the side of destiny with Aang is that there is one path for him to, one path for him to go. What choices he makes on that path will, will help, will help lead it. But the swamp was always a part of the path. There was no area in which he had no choice in the swamp. Even like even his rejection again brings him to the swamp. It's not like he rejected the swamp and then it diverted him to somewhere else. You know, it's not like he didn't go to the swamp and it takes him to somewhere else. It's not it, 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 kind of in your aspect of saying, you know, like, no, I'm going to stay here and be a farmer. I'm not going to do that. It doesn't feel as 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 tied as, you know, I'm going to run away from being the avatar. Oops. You're still, you're still have to save the world type of thing. This is an inevitability. <laughs> the swamp is that point in time that he needed at that point, at that place in his life. And there was no way around it. There's no other place where he could learn the information that, that Toph is his earthbending master. That's not the answer that I was necessarily looking for, but you never yeah, give me the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> and it was a good answer anyway. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and I I do not disagree with you. Yeah, I don't think you I don't think you do, but I think we have some we, nuance. We do look at it differently. Yeah. I yes. I do I do agree with you that, you know, he needed to go to the swamp in order to recognize his earthbending master when he meets her. Yes. But I think I think so far in Aang's journey, it's been very his his personal journey towards becoming the avatar has been very grounded in the idea of learning to bend the four elements. And there's more to being the avatar than just being able to bend all four elements. Yes. As we learned from the general, (laughs) there is a spiritual aspect. Yeah. There's a spiritual aspect. There's, uh, there's a duty to the people of the world and to nature and spirituality. And Aang is going to have to learn all of these things. And I think that the swamp presents a, a call on Aang to open himself up to some of that in a way that he has a bit, you know, he has the, the air nomads were one of the more spiritual do you see it as similar to a call from Hebai? I do see it similar to the call from Hebai. I, I okay. I thought that's kind of where you were going, but just wanted to double check. See, here's the thing. I don't think that the encounter with Hebai was necessarily Ang's call to the the spirituality of the Avatar and and that level of well, you know that is balance the first of the time natural he, order. It's the it's, but that is the first time that he that he uh, astral projects and comes and comes outside of his body. Yeah, but I I don't think you know I think that that incident and and that event and those circumstances you know I don't think he's extrapolating a any sort of of duty or or sense of you know this is a thing that I need to incorporate into my existence as the avatar. Well, he does choose to land at that forest to see what happened. 
Yes. He does choose to land there as opposed to the swamp who calls to him and he does not go. And he, he says, nah. <laughs> and it says, no, you have no choice in this. <laughs> I think it's the difference between, you know, someone doing the right thing because it's convenient or it satisfies their curiosity at the time versus, you know, he's being, I, I think the swamp is trying to tell him that, look, this thing that you have happened to do in the past is something that you have to do in the future. That you're not just helping people, you are helping, you are helping nature the world. and you are helping spirits. Yeah. So it's all, it's all three combined that you need to combine the people, the nature and the spirit and the spiritual and the swamp itself is kind it, it brings all three of those together in being such a mystic hotspot but also being very full of nature. It's its own. Exactly. And and we've we've seen instances where he has done this before. I mean, you, you almost want that in your hero. You want them to be someone that, you know, normally would do good things purely out of the goodness of their heart. But what do they do when they're presented with a situation where they're called on to do good things for a greater reason than the goodness of their heart. And I, I think that's what we're seeing here. It's it's very much building on what his responsibility is. And it I think I think Aang's responsibility to answering the call of the swamp is very much a reminder, like the swamp philosophy that everything is connected, um, you know, life and death, everything is connected, that while your goal may be to end this war and to save people, it does not mean that you should not listen to the nature and the spirits when they call on you, that it is a large responsibility for the Avatar, who is currently a 12-year-old child, to understand take and to listen to all aspects and uh, meet all expectations. Yeah, we we talk about, you know, the, the duty of the Avatar to stop the war, to restore balance to the world. And I think, you know, that's that's a thing that we as viewers of the show, you know, it's very easy for us to ascribe that that mentality to the show and to Aang's duty. But I think this is really where like the show is saying that's what he has to do. Yeah, it's cuz he cuz his he's like he's like I'm busy. I have I have this I have this deadline coming up. I have to find a teacher really quick. Like this is not sorry weird mystical swamp calling out to me. This is not the most important thing on my to-do list and it says no. <laughs> Everything is important on your to-do list unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It's all the same thing. There is only one thing on his to-do list. He just doesn't <laughs> realize it. Well, it's, I think it's, it's about prioritizing and finding balance to your to-do list. Yeah. And um, I do... It's funny because I don't remember this episode very well. And I feel like I shortchanged myself so much the first <laughs> watch. Because this is, this is going to be meaningless to you. But for some of our listeners who have probably been shouting at me for the better part of every time I mention the swamp, they'll, they'll understand. I feel like I slept through, like this episode is the Mortis arc of this show. For anyone who watched the Clone Wars, you know what I mean. Okay. I'm so sorry. I slept through it the first time. Yay. That's all I wanted to hear. (laughs) Kelly, when you eventually watch the Clone Wars and you get to the Mortis arc, you'll know what I mean. And you'll be like, yes. Oh my God. It's the swamp. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad that you found a new appreciation for the swamp. Definitely. And I think I think Sokka sums it up very well. It's just avatar stuff. Thank you for listening to the Pie Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash twenty-four. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at the Pie Show or email us at the at gmail.com. And we got some listener mail. We got some week. email this week. <laughs> I'm very happy about this. Me too. <laughs> so we got some listener feedback about kind of poking us into a spirit world fight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listener Nicole sent us this long form, like multiple paragraph. It's beautiful. I love it. And 
you you can expect an email in response if you don't already have one. <laughs> I have thoughts for you. Um, but yeah, she's egging us on into a fight. I love it. She's she's sent me her opinions before, uh, but I want It's it's really nice to get the email and have us both experience her thoughts at the same time. Yeah, I. She talks a lot about like the nature of the spirit world, and I think she honestly makes my argument a lot better than I do. She's good like that. Yeah, it's <laughs> talking about how it's like a distinct place that has become more distinct as humans have existed in the world. Yeah, I think she does make a good point about that and it's it's almost kind of a a, a ley line where she say, she calls it that the boundary would be more malleable over time and place. Yeah. Um any and you know mentions stuff like the solstice and uh different areas of the world in Cora and even you know the swamp itself is a place that would it where it would be more malleable. Or the oasis at the Northern Water Tribe. Yeah. We also heard from uh, listener Jack talking about how the swamp is the perfect linchpin episode. And I agree. I I think uh, my comparison to Mortis actually says that pretty same thing. Um, Yeah, this is an episode that showcases how much the spiritual side of the Avatar can affect the world at large, even if it's subconsciously. Thanks, listener Jack. (laughs) But yeah, we would love to hear what uh, more of you think about this episode or future episodes. Um, So you can email us, please, and we read them all, and we will respond. One of us will, at least. Um, Yep. We take take short emails. We take long-form essays. If you have a college paper that you wrote about Avatar and you want to send it to us, I will read the crap out of it. Just know that if I respond to it, I will reply to every single point and you will get an email back in response that is twice the length of the one you sent. Please let it be the red-lined one so that Colton doesn't do it. Kidding. Kidding. He wouldn't. He's a nice person sometimes. <laughs> you were actually very nice people. <laughs> I take, and again, I've had people uh, hit me up on Instagram. Um, I've had people text me. Or tell me during my D&D sessions their thoughts on our latest episode. Uh, would love to get those. Would love to get those in email. So that way Colton and I have like are an equal footing for whatever fights you would like to instigate for us. Because I just want to give him a fair fight. 